The COVID-19 pandemic has made us all more aware of how the spread of disease can impact our daily lives. However, there are many places, particularly in the tropical regions of the world, where the ongoing threat of serious disease is nothing new. Rising temperatures caused by climate change could allow for diseases like malaria to spread to new regions and areas of the globe. Together with ongoing environmental pressures, we could be looking at an increase in our vulnerability to global pandemics. Are we ready to deal with this looming threat? Hello, and welcome to the Met Aaron podcast. I'm Liz Walsh. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick, and in this month, we are exploring how climate can influence the spread of disease and how weather may impact the transmission of COVID-19. We're delighted to be joined by Dr. Rachel Lowe, Associate Professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Rachel is also a member of the World Meteorological Organization's expert team on COVID-19, which we'll be discussing a little later in the episode. So thanks so much for joining us today, Rachel. We've been really looking forward to, to getting stuck into this, into this episode. We're aware of the effects that climate change might have directly on human health. So through things like severe storms or floods or fires, things like that. But, but there are a whole range of indirect ways that, that climate can affect health. Yeah, sure. So climate can affect our health in, in multiple ways. And, and one of those ways is uh, pr providing uh, more suitable conditions for the, the emergence and re-emergence of um, new disease vectors and pathogens um, to areas that previously hadn't seen these. So you mentioned their disease vectors. So can you just clarify what, what you mean by that? Sure. By vector-borne disease, I mean uh, diseases that are spread by uh, a vector which could be a mosquito or a tick. Um, and these um, mosquitoes and ticks in, in particular, they're very sensitive to changes um, in the temperature, which can affect um, the, the biology of, um, of, of these vectors. So um, particularly mosquitoes that can transmit um, the arboviral diseases, dengue, chikungunya and Zika. We've seen an expansion of the Aedes albopictus mosquito through Southern Europe, for example. And so that increases the chance of uh, being able to establish local transmission of those diseases in Europe, for example, and we have seen some localized outbreaks of um, dengue and Zika in, in parts of Europe. In terms of those sensitivities, are there, are there particular diseases that are um, highly sensitive to climate? Are there, are there some that you would say that are particularly sensitive? Well, um, dengue and malaria are particularly very important mosquito-borne diseases uh, which are sensitive to changes in the climate. So temperature um, sort of up to an optimum point provides uh, ideal conditions for uh, the mosquitoes um, to speed up their transmission cycle and also for the, for the pathogens they transmit. Um, outside of the optimum ranges, it can either be too cool or, or too hot for transmission. And also we see these sort of non-linear relationships with precipitation as well. For example, when we um, have too much rainfall, we can disrupt breeding habitat, um, habitats of the mosquitoes. Whereas if we have very dry conditions, drought conditions, this can actually cause um, additional water storage containers um, to mitigate the effect of drought. And then that in turn can produce more mosquito um, breeding sites. Like I think a lot of people, um, they've heard of malaria but they're, um, and dengue as well. Um, but can you just explain what malaria is? Absolutely. So malaria is, um, is a disease that's caused by plasmodium parasites and around 93% of all cases occur in sub-Saharan Africa. 
and malaria is particularly linked to inequality and poverty. Malaria is transmitted between humans by female Nopheles mosquitoes. Um, they're mainly found in tropical and subtropical areas, um, although you can find some species at higher latitudes. And the spatial range of malaria is very much uh, related to human interventions um, over the past five decades. So we have seen some um, improvements, although um, recently we've also seen some uh, so kind of a reverse of these uh, positive efforts. And we've seen a, a re-emergence, uh, particularly in, in Latin America. Um, we've seen a tenfold increase in cases in Venezuela, for example. In terms of the future projections for malaria under climate change, I mean, you mentioned already that there have been some increases, again, in, in Latin America and places like that. Uh, how do we how do we see malaria changing or increasing in the future, assuming that we have some climate change? Yeah, so according to um, models based on uh, scenarios of um, increased emission scenarios, we would expect the suitability, the climate suitability for the transmission of malaria to increase in tropical highlands, particularly in Africa, also in the eastern Mediter Mediterranean region and in, in the Americas. Um, and we also see um, similar uh, projections for dengue uh, with the sort of epidemic belt for both these diseases expanding towards more temperate areas. Could we see it here in, in Ireland? According to the models, it looks like in, in Europe, it's more um, likely in sort of eastern Mediterranean um, area to have that ideal combination of temperature, precipitation and humidity. And it also really depends on the sort of local um, socioeconomic conditions uh, for these diseases to, to establish themselves. So a lesser known, so you've talked about the lesser known disease there, um, dengue, which is also spread um, by mosquitoes. And is that spreading very quickly? in the tropics? Yeah, we've seen a, a huge global increase in, in dengue over the last few decades, and it's now endemic in over 120 countries. Um, right. And the spread is thought to be due to a combination of things, including climate change, but also urbanization, uh, globalization, um, sort of international travel. So uh, both people spreading the disease around and also um, uh, mosquitoes being able to uh, reach new places through trade, for example, trade in uh, used tires is, is one route. So yeah, we've seen it. Dengue is now considered one of the top 10 global health threats by the World Health Organization. What are the symptoms of dengue? Like, you know, because I know that some people can be asymptomatic and that's part of the problem of it, really. Absolutely. So uh, the the reported cases we have of dengue is really only the tip of the iceberg because there's only only really those symptomatic cases that then sort of report into the health systems. But there is a huge proportion of um, asymptomatic people who ha who either have have the disease and and don't realise it and are able to to spread is able to spread easily that way or otherwise um, they the sort of subclinical symptoms and it's never caught by the surveillance systems. What are the symptoms of dengue? The symptoms of dengue are sort of se severe flu-like symptoms, so fever, aches and pains or rash. Um, and this can turn into a more severe form of the disease, which can in include um, um, hemorrhagic dengue fever, for example, which can in some cases be fatal. So it's really important to seek hospital uh, treatment in this case. And when we tend to have epidemics um, of the disease, then we can really see hospitals being overwhelmed. And sometimes, for example, in Brazil in the past, 
and uh, the the military and other services have to be brought in to deal with the sort of overwhelming number of people with with dengue which can result in you know a huge socioeconomic burden on society um, a, a big problem in terms of um, days missed at work and it, it, it also can be very severe in, in some uh, in children as well. Rachel I know you developed a model for the Brazilian World Cup in terms of predicting the I guess the levels of of transmission during that period I mean that must have been an incredibly def- difficult thing to do to try and try and forecast a disease. Absolutely so at the time of the the World Cup uh, we were working with the Ministry of Health in, in Brazil and there being a lot of speculation about what what might happen in terms of um, dengue transmission given that over three million travelers were coming into the country I mean, the games did take place in the Southern Hemisphere winter uh, when as conditions can be less suitable for the transmission of dengue. But of course, the games took place across a very wide gradient of different climates because Brazil is a very large country. We had, uh, from previous research, we'd established a, um, a probabilistic model combining climate conditions with socioeconomic conditions. So then we had the opportunity to put our model into practice. So we combined seasonal climate forecasts uh, for temperature and precipitation, which were put together by the climate services in Brazil. So they were to forecast the climate conditions just in the months preceding the games. And we combined that with the um, surveillance cases, uh, the reported dengue cases at the time of our forecast. And that allowed us to produce a probabilistic forecast um, three months ahead of the games. That's fantastic. And, and were you able to go back after the games and you know, um, evaluate how well the the model had performed? Yes, we were. So after, um, afterwards, we were were able to access the reported cases um, during during the month that we predicted. And we found that our our model did substantially better than a a model based on seasonal averages, which is usually uh, the way that um, epidemics are, are tracked by following what's called the endemic channel, which is just the the mean of the historic cases, if you like, over the last few years. So using a a climate-informed model, we were able to provide more um, predictive ability to the model than just relying on those seasonal averages alone. That's fantastic. And obviously, we're talking about different timescales here, but would the fact that you've got, you know, good performance from a model like that give you confidence then when you're looking at longer timescales for these predictions for disease behavior on a you know on a climate change timescale. Yes, we have also been uh, having a look at uh, combining climate change scenarios with socioeconomic um, scenarios as well. So looking at sort of a range of emission scenarios from making a lot of effort to mitigate the impacts of climate change to business as usual, and also combining that with uh, different uh, projections of, of population density, for example. Um, and in, in those models, we've particularly been trying to understand how the length of the transmission season might change and also trying to estimate the population at risk in different parts of the globe. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's it, like that just sounds so interesting. Like so the so what were the type of things that like um, from the climate perspective, were you, were you kind of investigating when you're building that model was it like um like was it el nino um that you were concentrating on or like what the situation was with el nino and um other climate factors as to whether you know you had tropical waves going through and obviously it was 
you what you mentioned it was the time of year so 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 when we have el nino events we tend to have improved seasonal climate forecasts they tend to yeah. work particularly well in certain uh, parts of the globe so there's areas that are more um, connected to the what's going on in the pacific ocean so when we have a warming of the pacific ocean we tend to see um, anomalous temperature or precipitation events in in different places and one place that's particularly sensitive to El Nino events is um, the coastal area of Ecuador. And we've been working there with um, colleagues in, in the, the health services there. And we developed a dengue prediction model in that area um, using El Nino and also um, anomalies in temperature and precipitation. And we found that following the 2016 El Nino, which was um, one of the mm. largest events Very on record, strong. We found that that, that event um, helped improve the seasonal uh, forecasts for that season. And, and it was actually um, the seasonal forecasts were able to detect um, a very large flooding event, which happened in the city of Machala, um, just following that El Nino event. And we also had anomalous temperature conditions. And we were able to combine um, forecasts of the um, precipitation and temperature conditions with, with El Nino and predict the evolution of the dengue season in 2016. And our model was able to detect an, um, an early peak in, in dengue compared to using the seasonal averages. So this was really interesting application of using tracking El Nino and understanding how that impacts the seasonal climate forecast to help us understand the timing and intensity of the dengue season. So that's a really exciting thing from a meteorological perspective um, that we are seeing direct impacts from improvements in weather forecasting techniques and seasonal forecasting directly helping to build health and disease forecast models to aid people in these disadvantaged areas of the world. Um, because it's, it's not a problem that these populations living in these areas get bad weather. It's, it's also the fact that these areas simply don't have the infrastructure in place to help them deal with the impacts of that weather. We know, for example, that drought increases malaria outbreaks, which is kind of counterintuitive because mosquitoes like warm, wet conditions. But it's how these countries deal with that drought. They get their cheap the cheap fix like water storage containers because the money to invest in a reliable municipal water supply just isn't available. And then the quick fix solution to the drought or the flood or whatever extreme event it is becomes the breeding ground for those mosquitoes carrying the disease. Yeah, so when you're in areas with poor environmental hygiene, for example, if you have lots of discarded waste, if you have um, water storage containers, um, for example, that are collecting water, or you can disrupt the fresh water supply, and that can also cause the spread of um, other waterborne diseases. So that kind of combination of poor environmental hygiene, um, hydrometeorological hazards, and uh, yeah the, the the not the ability to sort of quickly address that situation that can lead to the ideal conditions for an outbreak of a climate sensitive disease like dengue or following flooding events we often see um, leptospirosis outbreaks as well is that factored into your models then that kind of um the socioeconomic impact as well yeah so when we're working with um spatial data as well we, we account for um, things like level of urbanization, um, sanitation indicators, to try and understand how that variation in, is tied in. Um, we've seen in from, a, from a recent study that we're seeing 
that the impact of drought, for example, is exacerbated um, in urban areas and particularly areas where we see an increased uh, reportage of uh, water supply interruptions. And, and sort of moving away a little bit from uh, the diseases themselves, but you, you know, we mentioned that with climate change, we may expect more extreme uh, weather events. We might get heavier rainfall here in Ireland and, and in the UK. Um, we might also expect to see more storms or more flooding. Um, and these, as a secondary effect, will have an increase on the spread of disease, I would imagine. Absolutely. So extreme uh, weather events can change the timing and intensity of different climate-sensitive diseases. So following floods and hurricanes, for example, we may see more outbreaks of leptospirosis. We can also have a um, displacement of, of populations, uh, which cause, could cause people having to, to gather in shelters, which has implications for the transmission of certain diseases. And also, as we, um, we can also see following um, heavy sort of rainfall events and even drought events, increases in mosquito-borne disease. I'd imagine people are also themselves, probably in terms of immune system, maybe are going to be more vulnerable if you have situations where you have food and water shortages, for example, or increased heat stresses due to climate change. Absolutely. And, and one of the biggest problems we're seeing uh, with climate change is a, a, a reduction in um, labour capacity and sort of hours lost um, in labour, particularly subsistence farming. It's having really severe, severe impact on on health, like the inability to work, which can also lead to shortages in, in food and an increase in anxiety. And this is one of a real problem in terms of parts of the world are just becoming too hot to be able to work outdoors. You mentioned um, that some of these diseases may spread into, you know, higher latitudes, but in regions where they're already established, could could climate change actually make it too warm for them to to succeed or could we see a diminish a diminishing of these diseases in areas that are already you know quite warm we could it's possible that parts of the globe could get uh, too hot for for the mosquitoes to be able to efficiently transmit diseases but i think on balance if we combine all the climate um, all the health impacts of climate change in these places we'll have a a, a huge negative um, impact from climate change overall could climate change yeah. lead to the development of new diseases or new strains? Because I know that disease or microbes can probably respond quicker, I would imagine, to changes in temperatures than, than say, big mammals like us can. Yeah, the issue with climate change is it's forcing animals and different species to have to move and migrate to areas where to escape the heat. So these kind of movements can cause uh, different animals to be mixing with each other. And there's more opportunity for pathogens to be exchanged and then lots of the things that are related to climate change like for example deforestation which is often often take place um, for agricultural um, land to be established all these things mixed together um, and place uh, humans in closer contact with livestock and all of this together creates more opportunities for um, spillover of zoonotic diseases that kind of leads into um, uh, like what you're you're working on now is with um, COVID-19. Is, is COVID-19 affected by the weather? So that's a really tricky one. So we, we would expect that, you know, respiratory disease um, could have some dependency on temperature and humidity. We tend to see, for example, 
diseases like influenza and other seasonal coronaviruses, they tend to have um, show seasonality. They tend to, for example, peak in the cooler uh, winter months in, in temperate regions. And that's partly due to um, the impact of temperature and humidity on, on the virus itself. Um, on our um, immune systems and also on how, how we behave. So for example, in the colder winter months, we tend to gather more indoors. But at the moment, it's very difficult for us to be able to unpick any um, weather signatures within the, um, the COVID data we, we have to date. So this is it's very difficult to tease that apart from the, the government interventions that have been implemented. So we know that any sort of reduction in social contacts is really what is, is driving um, transmission patterns. So as we intensify or relax those measures in different parts of the world, um, it's very difficult to pick that apart from the seasonal cycle. So at the moment, there's um, no evidence to suggest that it would be safe to relax measures during warmer months, for example. So at the moment, it's very much um, any decision based on um, government intervention should not be uh, related to meteorological factors at the moment. But we think that as the disease, you know, as immunity builds, as, you know, vaccinations are rolled out, and as this disease becomes established, then we may well see a seasonal cycle in future years. So in terms of the influence on, on COVID-19 transmission, it's, it's really more so a combined effect of, of how people behave in given weather conditions. Yeah, so there have been some laboratory studies to show that the virus can survive longer under cooler and, and drier conditions, but we don't know how that plays out in real world uh, conditions, particularly with such intense government interventions. But certainly um, weather driven human behavior will have a huge impact. But of course, that isn't, it's not clear cut how that will uh, play out because often, you know, very cold conditions, uh, people gather indoors, but also uh, when we have uh, extremely hot conditions uh, with air conditioning, that can also cause a lot of indoor transmission. I guess COVID-19 has, has made us all more aware of disease, you know, not just individually, but also on a societal level and on a, on a government level. Do you think that that could possibly be a positive in the future when it comes to being aware of and preparing for and tackling diseases uh, that may increase due to climate change? I certainly hope this is a, a wake up to the international community and to governments to really invest in. We really need to move from a reaction to a prevention framework. We need to be ready for the next pandemic. We need to be able to slow the spread of these diseases due to climate change. And we really need to shift our efforts to be able to build resilience and prevent these outbreaks from happening in the first place. So in terms of travel restrictions, we are familiar with the travel restrictions we're all living under at the moment, is that something that could become more common as uh, climate-related diseases increase in different regions of the world? I think it's going to be really important to be able to have a better understanding of the way um, the, the movement of, of travellers and understanding the health conditions of travellers and being able to record that and have a better chance of being able to detect outbreaks um, and understand, for example, by, by sort of increasing the way we, we monitor the health of travellers, we can better understand where uh, a disease might be emerging and maybe take measures to, for example, protect, protect uh, travellers on, on flights or taking international 
uh, travel. I suppose, um, like we've heard about the the specter of of climate change and and how um, that's going to like increase the risk um, of disease. But can we avoid the worst effects at this stage? Do you think, Rachel? I think it's never too late to act. Uh, there's so many things we can do to reduce our carbon footprint, to live a more sustainable lifestyle. Uh, many things not only to do with the way we travel, like shifting to more active forms of travel, but also our consumption patterns, uh, consuming less um, red meat and animal derived products, thinking about our fashion choices. Um, there are so many actions that we can take as individuals and we also need to be putting pressure on governments to, to take action to, to really meet those um, Paris Agreement goals and to uh, reduce the, the carbon footprint of, of the most, particularly those nations that have contributed to the worst problems. Well, I think those are uh, good words to live by and um, we could all yeah. take a lot from that. So thank you so much for that, Rachel. It was a really, really interesting conversation and uh, certainly learned a lot and we look forward to uh, to hopefully being able to travel in the future, but also keeping these uh, keeping these developments in mind. So thank you again. Pleasure. I guess as it's a good sign that we are beginning to take climate change more seriously. We had the approval of the final text of the climate bill uh, recently passed by government, and, and that's looking to ensure that we achieve net zero emissions by 2050. Yeah, it's pretty timely, um, I suppose, um, given what we've just talked about. Pretty ambitious as well, because we're looking at a 51% reduction um, in 2018 level carbon emissions by 2030. Interesting to see um, how we get on with that. But it's obviously pretty important um, that we do take action after what Rachel has said and what we discussed there. Yeah, for sure. It's good to have a definite plan in place and definite goals and milestones that we have to reach but as you say that that 2030 target is a dramatic uh, reduction so uh, here's hoping we can we can stick to that yeah i think it's pretty inspiring like you know what rachel said about kind of the individual as well can do things um to help here like you know about being proactive about like where you get your clothes from taking these take the taking the bike instead of the car that kind of thing um we cannot we all have our part to play absolutely there's a good individual role but also then acknowledging to have the widespread systemic change that we need it has to have government backing definitely well that brings us to the end of this episode. Our thanks again to Dr. Lowe for joining us this month and helping us to understand the links between climate, weather and disease. Feel free to get in touch on the MetAaron or RTE Weather social channels or by emailing us at podcast at met.ie or weather at rte.ie. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love to have you on board this season, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and do check out our previous episodes. We'll be releasing new episodes on the last Thursday of every month. So until next time, thanks for listening and take care. The Met Aaron podcast was researched and presented by Dr. Noel Fitzpatrick and Liz Walsh. Production and editing is by Janie Lanron.